The Lifestylist, episode 45, featuring Khalil Rafadi. I'm Luke Story, a former celebrity fashion stylist and founder of School of Style. For the past 20 years, I've been relentlessly dedicated to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of health and spirituality. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. Folks, this is your captain speaking. I'd like to remind you that the fastened seatbelt sign is on, and I'd like you to remain seated for the rest of this episode, which is part two featuring our guest, Khalil Rafati. I am, of course, Luke Story, here to bring you the raw, unadulterated, real truth regarding Khalil's rise from the depths of hell in his addiction to becoming a really successful, happy, and wise entrepreneur on the mean streets of Malibu, California. So if you didn't catch part one on Tuesday, I encourage you to go back and give that a listen, but you're absolutely free just to jump in here because there's an immense amount of value and inspiration in the entire interview, whether it's the first half or the second half. So some of the things we cover in this episode are as follows, how Khalil went from living as a criminal and a junkie on Skid Row to eventually owning and operating a multi-million dollar chain of smoothie and juice bars in Southern California, how he escaped jail and finally got his ass sober, and really what makes you do drugs in the first place. We talk a lot about childhood trauma and sexual abuse and some of the gnarly stuff that happens to us human beings and how some of us turn to drugs and alcohol to cope with that, how once you're sober, you can learn to form healthy relationships of the romantic nature and otherwise. And does medication help to treat addiction in terms of psych meds and things like that? How to overcome other addictive behaviors? We all know that, well, at least I know, (laughs) once you've given up the the main monkey on your back, there's a lot of little chimps that kind of crawl on board that aren't necessarily drugs and alcohol, and those need to be dealt with eventually as well. And we, of course, cover how Khalil actually overcame these terrible addictions and what role rehabs and sober living houses played in his recovery, what spiritual practices he currently uses to stay sober, and the real power of prayer and meditation, how he manages to overcome negative thoughts and feelings that could lead back to a life of crime and despair, how to remove self-doubt and really gain self-worth and self-confidence, and then how diet, superfoods, herbs, and biohacking assisted in his recovery and continue to enlarge and enrich Khalil's life. And then, of course, learning how to handle money and personal finances after a lifetime of addiction and how to avoid getting into debting and compulsive spending. And then finally, how to lose the need for attention and public approval and really kind of own your space in the real world as well as on social media. So this entire interview for myself and for Khalil, I got to say, was just like very, very authentic and real. And you're hearing two guys talk very openly about a lot of really intimate stuff for better or for worse. You know, I think it's probably for the better based on the feedback I got. But this is, like I said, a very raw, real, open and honest conversation between two guys just trying to learn and grow. And Khalil's story is just a fantastic testament to the power of applying spiritual principles to your life. So I'm so happy to share this with all of you, and I hope that you benefit from it. I know you're going to benefit from it, actually. And when you do, I'd love to ask you a favor, a couple different things. I'd love for you to share this episode and even the one before it with anyone you know that's struggled in this area. 
because I think there's some real immense value in here and sort of the purpose of my doing this podcast and the purpose of Khalil coming on the show to share all of his dark, dirty secrets is really to um, get rid of some of the stigma and around addiction and alcoholism and really reach out to those people. So don't be shy. Share this with a couple people. I'd also love for you to do this. If you wouldn't mind, it would be so awesome if you could go into iTunes and leave a rating and a review for this show. I know it's asking a lot to take three to five minutes and go do that, but you have no idea how helpful it is if you're a podcast host, a producer like I am, to get those ratings and reviews. All you have to do is log into iTunes, find my podcast, and get her done. If that's confusing to you, I made it super easy. You can go to lukestory.com forward slash how to iTunes review. That's lukestory.com forward slash how to iTunes review. Thank you so much for listening, leaving a review, and sharing this with a friend. And I will speak to you next Tuesday with Dr. Robin Berzin from Parsley Health. It's going to be a great episode all about becoming your own doctor and using functional medicine to stay well. One of my favorite ways to optimize my own personal performance and do things like running a podcast is to use technology to mimic the power of nature. And the human charger is one of the best ways to do that. The human charger is like having sun in your pocket. It's a small device that's got these earbuds you put in your ears and it shoots a very specific frequency of white light into your brain. When that light hits your brain, it tells your brain that you're getting noon sun. And when that happens, your brain starts to produce chemicals like serotonin, dopamine, and noradrenaline. Those are the things that give you a good mood, energy levels, mental alertness, etc. This device also works excellent for jet lag because essentially it tricks your brain into thinking you haven't changed time zones, which is really what happens for jet lag. And that's been a huge problem for me. So bright light therapy like this has been used since the 1980s and it's been mostly administered through the eyes. Well, now you can do it through your ears and it only takes 12 minutes a day. So it's a really cool piece of biohacking technology. I use it all the time. Otherwise, I wouldn't be talking about it. If you want to check it out, you can go back to episode 28, where I talk all about jet lag and this device specifically, or just go to humancharger.com forward slash Luke, and you can read all about it. Now, don't play yourself, though. Once you get over there, you want to use the code STORY20 to save 20% off your order. So go to humancharger.com forward slash Luke and use the code STORY20. A huge part of my health strategy is taking medicinal herbs and medicinal mushrooms. And one of my favorite ways to take them is by making herbal elixirs. That's really tasty, hot and cold drinks. It's much cooler to take them that way than taking a bunch of pills. Like who can remember to do that? Well, I want to let you know about my friends from Four Sigmatic. These guys make the most potent, high quality and delicious herbal blends that are really easy to take. You can make a cold or hot herbal elixir drink. Like what I like to do is either add them to my bulletproof coffee, or if I don't want to have caffeine, I'll just make myself a four sigmatic herbal elixir with something like cordyceps, lion's mane, um, chaga mushrooms, reishi mushrooms, ashwagandha, all the good stuff, all the stuff that you can really feel working is available at Four Sigmatic. So what I'd like you to do is go to foursigmatic.com and check it out. They have an amazing suite of products. And like anything that I promote, this is stuff that I use every day myself. I love this stuff. I'm super addicted to it, which is why I want to tell you about it. So go to foursigmatic.com. But even better, when you're there, enter the code THELIFESTYLIST at checkout and save 15% off your order, which is pretty sweet. So enter the Lifestylist and save 15% at foursigmatic.com.
Khalil Rafati is an author, speaker, and health and wellness entrepreneur. Born in Toledo, Ohio, Khalil came to Los Angeles in the 1990s and had it all. He was working with Hollywood movie stars like Elizabeth Taylor and legendary rock musicians, but it wasn't long before he found his way into the dark underbelly of the City of Angels. He eventually found himself addicted to heroin and cocaine, overtaken by paranoia and psychosis, and written off by his friends and family. At 33, Khalil weighed 109 pounds, was a convicted felon, a high school dropout, and homeless junkie living on the infamous Skid Row in downtown L.A. After finally hitting bottom, he was able to achieve recovery from a life of crime and addiction and is now owner of Sun Life Organics, a rapidly growing chain of popular juice and smoothie bars in California, as well as the owner of Malibu Beach Yoga. His book, I Forgot to Die, is an incredible true story of pain, suffering, addiction, and redemption, and how one man ultimately conquered his demons and wrote himself a new life story. Okay, so here we are, back again. We've taken a bathroom break, Yeah, turned a light on the camera so people can see that. <laughs> can see. We've, been, we've been sitting, we're out in Malibu, and it's like, I forget, it's not daylight savings anymore, so it's getting dark right now. It's about 4.30 in the afternoon, but we're back with Khalil for part two of the podcast. And as these things sometimes go, especially when I interview people with whom I have so much in common and just kind of a rapport and a bond with, it's like, you just can't stop. An hour is not enough. So it has to be a two-parter. I think this will be my second two-parter that I've done. Awesome. I feel honored or um, I feel embarrassed. No way. It's (laughs) awesome, dude. It's awesome. I'm no people pleaser. I'd be like, cool, thanks so much. We're out of here. (laughs) No, it's good, man, because there's just... You have a very rich story and a rich life experience, and there's so many parallels. And I, my message to the listeners of the Lifestylist podcast is how to build the ultimate lifestyle. And um, you know, my own struggles with addiction and alcoholism and stuff are something that took a lot of careful consideration mm-hmm. in terms of being public with that and wanting to put that out there. Yeah. And when I did my first episode which is kind of when you tell your story. It was called Return of the Jedi, you know, and it was about like, it was like, you know, my version of your book, the whole kind of life story. And it's not like I'm famous or anything like that. And it's going to be a big deal if someone knows that I was a drug addict, but I didn't know if I wanted to go there. And even in the interview today, I've revealed some things about myself that I've never talked about and just in terms of the details. But it's all about building the lifestyle and... It's about the intention of why those things are being presented, like the intention behind your book and you revealing all of these, you know, some like really personal things that some people might even feel embarrassed or ashamed about. Yeah, um, they shouldn't. But. Yeah, you're doing it with the intention of carrying that message to other people that might yeah. be able to benefit. And so if you have a lifestyle in which you're struggling with addiction, you, the listener, this is really crucial information. This is yeah. information that can literally save lives because of the identification of someone going, oh, shit, I think I have that. Right, right. This is how you dealt with that. So I want to continue on that thread because there's so much to talk about. But, you know, where we left off in part one was really how do we end up here and why does one person become an addict and the other one doesn't when they experience the same thing and all that. And it's sort of an open-ended mystery that maybe we'll never know the answer to. I just know that my life got so dark and so painful at a point that it forced me to learn about spirituality mm. in a very real way. And you're talking about in sobriety. Well, after, yeah, we'll go there too. Yeah, okay, <laughs> okay. There's like, yeah. you got 13 years of what happens like after you get sober. I have almost 20 years and yeah. that's when the real work starts. Sure. You know? But I wanted to find out from you, when did the actual grace enter your life 
that enabled you to stop the physical using of drugs and alcohol. For me, it was, I remember the exact day that it happened. Yeah. Check myself into treatment, blind drunk going in there just on a horrendous alcohol binge. Woke up the next, well, woke up. I mean, you don't wake up when you're, <laughs> when you're living like we used to live. You know, you come to, but I came to in this treatment center in Northern California called Azure Acres, a little, you know, a mom and pop kind of big sort of lodge in the woods. Yeah. It was in February 97. It was freezing. Wow. It was the day after Valentine's Day. Not that that meant anything to me, but I just remember the date because that's the day when my life changed. And all I knew was that, I hated my life and I wanted to die. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I was going to end up where you went. Yeah. Downtown LA, Skid Row, abscesses, like all yeah. that shit was coming next. I narrowly escaped that. It's like I steered my canoe over to the shore right before it went over the waterfall. Right. You know, like that classic thing you see in old movies and cartoons. It was like, oh, I'm about to die. So what happened was the only thing I knew was that you're supposed to pray mm -hmm. and that this thing is all, the only thing that will save you is God. So it doesn't matter what God you believe in, but you just have to understand that you are not God because if you were your own God, you would be able to control the shit on your own and right. you, your willpower would be sufficient to stop this. Right. I had totally admitted defeat, totally surrendered to the fact that I can't control this. I keep ending up in the same situation over and over again. I might switch drugs, but eventually I'm going to end up right back on all of them at once yeah. every time. So what happened to me, the most, really the most profound experience of my entire life, and I don't say that um, without sincerity, is I woke up, I go, oh my God, what have I done? <laughs> you know, yeah. I was like, I'm in a goddamn treatment center. I was like, oh fuck, I yeah. did it. What have I done? You know. And I thought, okay, well, what do I do? What do I do? What do I do? I can't run away. I'm too far out in the woods. I'm paying for this place. It was like yeah. $10,000, which was a lot for me. Um, I borrowed the money from my mom, God bless her. So I woke up, I'm like, well, my mom will kill me. She just paid 10 grand and I'm gonna owe her the money whether I stay here or not. She's yeah. not gonna be like, cool, you relapsed and ran away from rehab? No problem, I'll just cover the 10 grand. She didn't have money, she was poor. That was her life savings. So yeah. I was kind of trapped in this place in a couple different ways. And so I thought, well, what did they say? They said, you gotta pray. And so I clumsily... I got on my knees and I thought about how I'd never prayed really before. I don't even know how to do it. I haven't been around religion or church, but I just thought about the movies. Yeah. When you see someone pray and I got on my knees and I put my hands together in that little like prayer position and, you know, my message to God, whatever God was, I had no concept. Uh, thankfully, I didn't have any preconceived ideas about God. I just was like, okay, there's something. I can admit that. I didn't think that something gave a fuck about me mm -hmm. or that it could hear me. But I did it anyway out of desperation, and I said my prayer, and it was something just like, God, I want to be sober. Like, you got to help me. I can't stop this. I'm going to die. Like, just yeah. help me. Please, this obsession, just remove it. You know, save me, save me. Please help me. Please help me. And it's not like I felt peace or I was happy. I was still suicidal <laughs> and miserable. You know, it's not like... The light, you know, the room filled with light. Sure. And, you know, I grew angel wings and floated <laughs> through the fucking ceiling or something. It's just Would like, have been nice. Yeah, I mean, nothing actually happened. But what happened was over the course of that day and the subsequent days to follow in that center for the next 28 days was 
from that moment on, ooh, we just had an ominous uh, ice uh, ice dump. Oh, is that was the ice dump? Yeah. Okay, it sounded yeah. like thunder. No. I was like, I said the word God, and it was like, <laughs> that yeah. would have been, yeah, you should have just let me believe it was I God. I should have. I messed up. It's the ice machine. So anyway, what happened was from that moment, dude, until this moment sitting here, 46 years old, on the eve of a 20-year anniversary of sobriety, never, ever once... Have I had a craving for drugs or alcohol? Yeah. Prior to that, from the time I was 10, 11 years old, every second of every day that I was alive, I craved drugs and alcohol. That was my number one priority was to get high, get high, get high, get high. I get it. Right? You know, that thing. So that was the first indication or sort of proof that there is some kind of God. I don't know what it is. It's not Jesus. It's not Buddha. It's just this thing. And this thing tends to listen to me when I'm desperate enough to call on it. Yeah. And that was the foundation of what is now this beautiful, amazing life that I have and this direct, very tangible experience of a relationship with God. Yeah. And the past 19 years plus, almost 20 have been spent applying that same formula to every problem in my life. Yeah. Identifying that there's something wrong, there's some neurosis, there's some character defect, there's some negative habit, there's some uh, negative emotion or thought or whatever it is, trying to fix it myself, exerting my will, not being able to change it at all. Yeah. And then finally going, oh my God, I'm going to try this God thing again. And then having things just systematically and incrementally little by little by little so slowly changed or removed by something bigger than myself and that was like the aha moment that set the tone for my whole life so what was your aha moment and did do you remember the time when you just were going oh my god i'm free i mean to me it was like i was a slave in shackles and the shackles just went and just disappeared and it was like holy shit I can go to downtown LA. I can walk by a liquor store. I yeah. can go to a concert and people are smoky weed. They pass me the joint. I'm like, oh no, I don't do that. It's like, how did that happen? Yeah. You can't explain. It was like an on and off switch in my soul, like a, a lever that was just like a yeah. breaker switch almost that was just like, nope, that's over. Yeah. What was that like for you? Well, uh, it's interesting because there's similarities and then there's and then there's major major differences and as you were explaining it, I grabbed my book because I wanted to read uh, something out of my book. Um, I could have somewhat quoted it, but I thought it was relevant. Uh, so I got I got peeled off the streets a couple of times. Uh, this guy named Baron um, was shooting a commercial and saw me muttering to myself and. Uh, he claims pushing a shopping cart. I don't remember pushing a shopping cart, nor do I remember him getting me. But I do remember the next day up at his house when he was trying to get my pants off so he could get me in the shower. And because of the abscesses and because I had been shooting up in my legs, he had to literally peel my pants off of me and they were stuck to me because the blood and the scabs and everything like that. That's how messed up I was one of the times that he peeled me off the streets. But I got to be honest with you, as soon as I put a little bit of weight on, slept for four or five days, ate some food, the moment he went to work, I stole his laundry change. I don't know if it was for laundry or what it was for, but he had a giant bowl of change and I stole that, and I hitchhiked down to Panga Canyon, and I went right back downtown. So I got peeled off the streets a couple of times, but ultimately 
there was an older woman named Penny who claimed that she was the woman that the Beatles wrote the song about Penny Lane, which I did the math and I don't think it was true. <laughs> but um, like uh, she wasn't alive yet, yeah. Right. So, but Penny, but Penny knew a guy named Bob Forrest, and Bob Forrest wasn't famous yet. Bob Forrest was working for a charity called Musicians Assistance Program. I got many friends are alive because of that program. Because of MAP, yeah. yeah. So uh, she called Bob Forrest, and uh, and Bob said, yeah, no no problem. We'll, we'll get you into treatment. And I'm like, you don't understand. Like, I'm homeless. My mom's, like, living in projects. Like, my dad won't speak to me. And he's just like, dude, relax. Like, get a ride down here, and then we'll get you into treatment. So... I'm just going to start with this paragraph here and just read two paragraphs. Perfect, please. Super quick. So Bob, Bob Forrest, Bob drove me to Pasadena Recovery Center. It was June 15th, 2003. When I got there, they gave me some pills and I slept for three days straight. When I woke up, I was all alone in my room. I knew exactly what was going on and where I was. Tears rolled down my face yet again. I closed the door to my room. I knelt next to the bed. I folded my hands. And I prayed, whatever you are, if you're there, please take this hell away from me. I will never forget those words as long as I live. I felt a lifting. The nausea and exhaustion remained, but a little bit of levity came into my being. I asked God for help, and God answered immediately with an overwhelming feeling of, you're going to be okay. I didn't see any burning bush, and no angels came out of the sky to wipe the sweat from my forehead. I didn't need any of that. The feeling of lightness, a feeling of knowing that there was a God and that God was going to take care of me, that was all that I needed. So wow. we we had a similar thing, and I, to this day, find it strange <laughs> that That's I folded similar, my yeah. hands and I prayed. Right, because um, I've never really done that since. I mean, I think I was thinking about literally like, I'm going, all right, how do you pray? And I think of the movies. You yeah. Know, when you see like a devout religious person in the movies, they get on their knees next to the bed. And yeah. it was some 1950s like American suburban like vision of like a Christian prayer or something that I had. And I, I don't think I ever really have done it like that. Maybe on occasion when I'm really hard up. Yeah. But it just became a much more of like an ongoing dialogue and relationship. But yeah, I guess... Well- that I, was my first stab at it, and it worked. So I was like, okay. Yeah, I went to Catholic schools. Um, my dad was Muslim, and my mother's religion is questionable. I'm not quite sure what it is. Pretty sure she was born a Jew, but raised a Catholic, and then they stuck me in Catholic school because those are the only private schools in Ohio are not just Catholic schools, but Jesuit schools, which is like the strictest form of Catholicism. So they always made us fold our hands. I do still do that. Um, actually three times a day, I still fold my hands and I pray back then it was a lot of like white knuckle gripping my hands together, uh, fervently praying and, and, and begging God to help me. And today it's more kind of fancy, you know, maybe even peeking out at my fancy watch every now and then to reassure myself that I'm okay. (laughs) My prayers are, 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 I don't know. In the beginning, they were very basic and, and rudimentary and simple. And I know when my prayers start to get more complicated, I'm off my spiritual path. Because really, the only thing I really should be saying to God is, God, please help me. God, can you please hold my hand? God, can you please hold my hand and walk me through this day? God, I'm scared. Can you please take away my fear? 
if my prayers are like that, then I have a little tiny ounce of humility and my day is going to go pretty good. If I start chanting or if I get a prayer mat out or if I put on a turban or if I start rubbing oils on myself, because I've done all that stuff. If I start doing that, I'm off the path. Because in my own personal experience, I'm not talking about anybody else, in my own personal experience, then I know that ego, ego has crept in. And there's nothing more dangerous for me than spiritual pride. Because if I develop spiritual pride, I'm done. I'm ruined. So I have to work very, very hard to remember that I don't know anything about God. Now, if I encounter somebody with a turban or a prayer mat or a synagogue or a cross on their chest, I have absolute and utmost respect for them, and I listen to them because I have a lot to learn from them. But if I ever start wearing the proper skirt or headdress or whatever it is, I'm in trouble. I got I, I got I got to keep it real simple. Oh, dude, I did an interview with Guru Jagat the other day from Rama Yoga, okay. a Kundalini master and teacher. She's got a studio in Venice, and we sat in her living room, much like this, and had a great talk, which I think will probably come out before this one. So if you're listening, I don't know, it could be before or after. I figured the the sequence out later. But anyway, one of my big questions for her, because she's a kundalini yoga teacher, yeah. wears all white, wears a turban, has a spiritual name, obviously, like she was probably born Jane Smith or something, Yeah, took on this name, and I have the direct experience, subjectively, that you're describing. I went to India, I yeah. came back wearing beads. Me too. Blessing people like this, wearing a dot on my head. Me too. Like, <laughs> the whole shit. And for yeah. me, it was a total ego trip. Yeah. And what happened was, it's like, my ego built a spiritual ego where right. I felt that I had this not exclusive contact with God, but that I was some sort of exalted being because I had put in the work and studied meditation with these monks and masters. And now I'm sort of like above other people. Yeah. This is a total ego trip, but yeah. so hard to see because it's hidden by good deeds. Well, like I'm blessing people, I'm being of service. I'm, yeah. I'm contributing positivity to the world and teaching people how to meditate and all this stuff. So it's very insidious because the ego, like, it hides in the shadows and it finds a selfish motive underneath. Yeah. A positive action. Yeah. And here, so, and, and here, and here. So I'm going out trying to get attention and like look cool for chicks by being like a spiritual I got it. guy. I got it. So I interviewed yeah. Guru Jagat and she's like, oh yeah, everyone knows. She was kind of like, duh, yeah, you have to watch out for that. That's, yeah. that's one of the pitfalls along the path, you know, yeah. is like that. I like how you put it very simply spiritual pride. Yeah. You know, so it's like, especially as you start to have spiritual power where you really can have an influence on someone's life. And, Absolutely. I mean, you to help a person that's newly sober and that power that's transmitted through you is a very real thing and you watch the effects of it and it's really tempting for the ego to be like, yo, I did that. Right. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It's like, right. no, dude, like you said, I don't know shit. I, I didn't know. do yeah. shit. I'm, I'm a vehicle and a conduit by which some other higher sense of power, love, and intelligence is helping that person right. and I'm just like an innocent bystander that's willing to participate and be used as the conduit. Yeah. So I appreciate that. So Yeah, and here and here's the yeah. good news and and I can tell you this this truth. You are an exalted being. You are Jesus Christ. You are Buddha. You are Krishna. You are a piece of God. And I can say that and I can see it. But the moment you think that, you are not that. That's the great you know, uh, conundrum is that, you know, people still all the time because of a couple of charities that I sit on the board or because of maybe some necklaces I wear every now and then, but people will say to me like, oh, well, you know, 
I mean, because you're a Buddhist. You're a Buddhist, right? And I'm like, no. They're like, you're not a Buddhist? And I'm like, no, I'm not a Buddhist. To me, that's like the moment you tell someone that you're a Buddhist, you're no longer Buddhist, right? That would be like me saying to you, like, Luke, I'm a yogi. What, what would you think? I mean, if you didn't know me and I walked up to you and I was like, yeah, man, I'm a yogi. You'd be like, what a tool. Yeah. What an, what an idiot. <laughs> I'd be like, you're a douchey. <laughs> right. However, I can see your divine light. I can see your purpose on this plane, on this existence. I can see that you are an exalted being and that you are put in a privileged position to help a lot of other people. And it's beautiful for me to witness that. But if you ever start thinking that, you're fucked. <laughs> so we have to be very, very, let me rephrase that. I have to be very, very careful about spiritual pride. I employ over 200 kids, most of them under the age of 25. And I've got 13 years of sobriety, clean time, whatever you want to call it. I help a good handful of them. I mentor some of them. I also sign their paychecks. So I'm in a weird position, you know, where they will start to look up to me and they will start to, you know, tell me good things about myself that my ego loves to hear. But if I ever start to believe my own press, I'm doomed. And so I, I have to be very, very careful about that stuff. Yeah, there's a great tape that I have, a spiritual lecture, and the guy comes out and uh, <laughs> he's being introduced and the guy that's introducing him says, you know, how spiritual he is, you know, all this philanthropy that he does and he's just such a great person and um, how humble he is and and then the guy comes out, thank you very much for the introduction. Um, I was just sitting there thinking, you know, uh, what it's like to be the most humble guy in the room. You know oh what God. I mean? It's like, yeah. You know, as, yeah. as a joke. And it was like, yeah, whoever thinks they're humble, just in that thought, in that moment, just became unhumble. Yeah. You know? or, or the girl that, you know, you, you, get dragged, you get dragged by your friends out for their birthday once a year and you're at whatever club and it's... 2.30 in the morning and you're just like you want to put toothpicks in your eyes to keep them open because they hurt so bad they feel like they're going to bleed and you're sitting with some girl who's drunk and she's explaining to you how like yeah like I'm not like religious at all but like I'm just like really spiritual and you're just sitting there like honey we're at a club it's 2.30 in the morning you are not spiritual <laughs> okay <laughs> this is this is like a cosmic joke <laughs> Well, that's, yeah, that's the, uh, that's the other thing. That's a great segue, actually. So, so you have spiritual pride, right? And then you have the spiritual ego where you take on a, a spiritual vernacular and clothing and maybe even a name and you sort of build this aura of mysticism around you that's somewhat fabricated, even though you may, and this is like the fall of the guru. I mean, there's so many classic stories about a guru that had real spiritual power, real shakti. And then their ego snuck in through the back door and sort of took them over like invasion of the body snatchers. And they start banging their followers and buying 40 Rolls Royces and just becoming this weird creep. You know? Yeah, but by the way, which ones didn't do that? Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I yeah. could name 40 of them that did do that. Yeah, so that's, that's that side of it. Yeah. But then there's the other side of it, which is something I've been talking about a lot because I see now that meditation and yoga and being spiritual is like a trend. And I'm not at the risk of sounding like I'm judging them because I'm the real kind of spiritual. Yeah. There is no real spiritual. I mean, everyone on the path has their right to do it, but it's been interesting to observe, having been someone that's been 
actively pursuing any and all forms of spiritual practice I've ever heard of for all these years is now you have like Instagram spiritual people and stuff right. and a lot of like posing and meditation pose and right. I do yoga. You know, the setting's very beautiful and all yeah. that. So it's like it's become a trend, which is like, dude, what a great trend. I mean, having been someone in the fashion industry for 17 years in a very superficial Hollywood thing. Yeah. And watching all those other weird trends, it's like cool. Please be a fake spiritual person before you're like a real asshole. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's all good. But there's something that's going on. It's the spiritual bypass. Yeah. And that's where you, you know, you start getting into yoga and meditation. And it's not necessarily born out of, you know, a desperation or like really hitting a bottom, like what our experience has been. It's just like, well, cool. Everyone's doing this and it feels nice. I like going to yoga. I like learning about meditation. And then there's this sort of like, belief that being spiritual is like oh it's all about bliss and i'm going to healers and getting reiki and yeah like i have crystals everywhere and like i wear these clothes and i'm just i'm all blissed out and being happy and blissful is our natural state and we're just supposed to be like that all the time and it's like dude <laughs> the spiritual path is fucking gnarly yeah because what's necessary is uprooting every, in my own experience, uprooting and bringing to light every dark and negative aspect yeah. of my being. Yeah, and and keep in mind that all those people that are they're they're healers and they're Reiki masters and they're wearing the robes and they're wearing all that stuff are the same. Many of the same people that are out now, you know, rioting and smashing car windows and right. where are their t-shirts? And hating that's, white people, right? Yeah. And where, where are their shirts <laughs> yeah. that said "Be the change in the world that you want to see"? There like you go. if if something. Oh man. Don't even get me started on this shit. No, but I'm just like, saying. Yeah, like, no, have you noticed nobody's ever heard of fucking Martin Luther King? Right. Let's just stop there. You know, it's right. like, hello. But yeah, I mean, and you know, again, at the risk of sounding judgmental, like I'm better than them or you're better than them, these are phases that I've gone through too. But I just, I'd like to warn, you know, the journeyman or woman out there that I think the true spiritual path, and this is the this is the path of the 12 steps and the path of A Course in Miracles and anything else that's profoundly affected my life is it's about facing the darkness. Yes. It's about facing the ego. It's yes. about digging out that nasty anger and that being judgmental and self-hatred and self-loathing and rage and hostility and envy and just all the grossest components of the human experience and systematically digging that out and bringing that to the surface. And then that's where the relationship with God or that spiritual practice does its work Yeah, is by bringing out those gross parts of yourself and facing it and owning that shit. And yeah. I don't think that process ever really ends. No, it doesn't. And it I doesn't. think the moment it ends is the moment where the spiritual ego comes in and is like, oh, it's all about bliss, man. It's all good. I'm spiritual. I'm just happy all the time. Yeah. I don't want to be happy all the time. Yeah. I want contrast. I want substance. I want depth as a person. And so when I've gone through the path of getting spiritual pride and becoming this totally fake, like gross, fake spiritual person... Now I could help someone going through that by saying, hey, man, look out around, you know, mile marker five on the road to the hilltop, you yeah. know, there, you're going to run into this thing called spiritual pride and, you know, the spiritual ego. And here's what it looks like because yeah. I've experienced it and I've been willing to own that shit yeah. and face it. It's yeah. like, how do you help someone overcome 
um, anger, if you haven't really lived in your anger and really faced it and admitted to yourself that that is such a motivating energy in your life, yeah, it's like how I've overcome anger to a large degree, and I really have. I really don't have the issues I used to have with it is from absolutely owning that shit, yeah, you know, and just vomiting it out into the world and and eventually surrendering it. I always feel so weird talking in such blatant God terms because um, I'm afraid of turning people off, frankly. But yeah. you know what? Fuck it. They're not ready to give up their anger then. Yeah. It's like surrendering that to God, just in the same way I surrendered my heroin addiction, crack addiction, alcohol addiction. It's like, this is too big for me. I can't do this. Yeah. Whatever you are, God, help me. So when I'm picking fights with people over a parking spot or whatever it is where that anger is running my life, I've got to own it. Like avoiding the anger because I want to be in bliss and go to yoga and say namaste to everyone. That's not going to get rid of my anger. Right. So what's been your experience of spiritual bypass and like just grinding it out and bringing up the darkness in you, the things that need to be healed and need to be resolved? Well, I mean, my whole thing, I started out, rather godless. And then I had that experience where, you know, I folded my hands. My cravings did not go away. My cravings didn't go away for a couple years. I mean, they were obviously nowhere as as acute and as intense as they were the first several months. Um, but let me just clarify. So in my experience, the cravings went away, which I knew when I walked out of that place at 28 yeah. days. Yeah. I'll never forget. My mom picked me up and we right. drove by a gas station. Yeah. And there was beer signs in the window. And all I had to do is say, Mom, I got to take a leak. Pull in there. Yeah. And I could have went inside and just pounded a beer. Sure. And the fact that I had the power now to not do that, yeah. I actually had the power of choice, Yeah, meant that the cravings had gone away. I did not. But for you... Yeah, I did but not. Here's, but here's the distinction, though. For you, it was a different experience, but yeah. you had the power to not do it. You didn't succumb to the cravings right. and do it. Yeah, I definitely received a giant, massive dose of grace from God and you don't ever get away with anything. Nothing comes for free. So there was a price to pay. So I remember my friend Frank had to go to Santa Monica to get a paycheck or something. For, and I remember him parking in this alley where I used to meet my, I used to meet my dealer in many alleys, but it was like a very similar alley. And I remember craving so badly that my jeans got wet. I was like sweating through my jeans and my heart was thumping. You're right. I didn't jump out of the car and run to the nearest payphone because there were still payphones back then. Um, yeah, I remember that. The payphone and pagers. Yes. Remember, like, yeah, of you course. Had, if you wanted to cop, you had to like page your of dude. Course. Yeah, of yeah, course. So my thing got sober and I got stuck in emotionalism. I was really, really in emotionalism. Some people call it a pink cloud. Uh, I think that, you know, some of the literature uh, in 12-step programs talks about it as emotionalism, but I got very caught up in, yeah, man, I'm sober, and like, happiness is a choice, and God this, and God that, and then uh, the novelty of being clean and sober wore off right around six months, and uh, I it got dark, and I was like, man, who am I kidding? I want to get high. Like, this sucks. I'm 34 I'm 34 years old. I look like shit. No one's going to ever hire me. I'm a high school dropout. I'm a convicted felon. My resume is like I smoked crack and shot heroin and shoplifted as a child. Like, How in God's name was I ever going to have any type of life worth living? And then someone gave me uh, Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle. And um, 
powerful. I read it and I read it and I reread it and I reread it and I, I got into it hard. And then um, about eight and a half months, I did some step work in one of the 12-step programs that I was going to. And I did it with a guy that was desperate. And so we did step work desperately. And I got some pretty amazing results. And I started cruising. I got a little job and I started to make a few bucks and I started to look a little bit better. And then for whatever reason, this one, well, it was a couple girls. It was one Pilates teacher. And then there was another girl that was freshly divorced. It was a little bit older than me. I got some action. <laughs> I got, you know, I, I hooked up with the girl, like a pretty girl. And it was a lot of fun. And I started to get like a taste and a lust for life again. And I started to wake up again. And my relationship with God continued to grow piecemeal. But about two and a half years in, the spiritual pride solidified. The ego was fully intact because I now had a little game going on, a couple years sober, hooking up with some different girls, running around with some newcomer girls, acting like a fool, character assassinating everybody, spiritual pride is growing, ego is growing, and then I had an investment go bad, and it was every penny that I had. You know, they never say, put all your eggs in one basket. I put all my eggs in one basket. I go about it, in my book, I go about it in great detail, but uh, I had an investment go bad, and by go bad, I mean I got completely wiped out, and... I had a bunch of jobs, but I was still making 10 bucks an hour, 12 bucks an hour. You know, I had what seemed to me a massive amount of money. It was $14,000, which is sort of funny now because I couldn't even buy this with that. But $14,000 seemed like a million dollars to me, and it disappeared in one morning. Um, I was messing around with options and futures. That's funny, dude. My own, The only time I've ever invested money was in a real estate deal and yeah. it was 15 grand and mine I lost 14. the money. Yeah, mine, <laughs> That's funny. Mine yeah. was $14,000. Yeah. I just didn't know for a few years that I had lost it because it was like, cool, we're, we're all going into this commercial property. I think it was like in Texas or something. Yeah. And, uh, and then I started like going, shit, whatever that 15 grand, it's been like two years now. Are we going to sell that property? And I was yeah. like, whoa, okay, uh, the market kind of crashed or whatever happened. And yeah. I think I got like $1,000 back, but basically I just ate the whole thing. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't get anything back and I wanted uh, to, to once again kill myself. And I was shaking my fists at the God of my understanding at that time and crying and how could you fucking do this to me? How could you fucking do this to me? And, um, and then I had a weird, almost like a burning bush experience. And again, I go more into detail with it into my book, but I had this like slap across my face. Like I didn't do anything to you, son. I gave you free will. I blessed you with the grace of sobriety and good health. Cause remember I passed my AIDS test and my hep C's test multiple times and realize now after sharing needles with all those homeless people and having unprotected sex for decades, I somehow managed not to get any diseases. And so God graced me. God blessed me, gave me an incredible life, even though I didn't deserve an incredible life. And I knew that. And I got back on my knees and I cried and I, and I begged for forgiveness. And then I got to work at about two and a half years, getting a little bit of humility back, getting back into the prayer, back into the, into the meditation. And it continues to be piecemeal to this day. I will be very honest with you. It is a lot easier to pray and meditate now with money in the bank. I mean, it's an entirely different experience. I remember trying to meditate back then, and it was like a cacophony of 
screaming, screeching breaks and and my father's angry voice screaming in my head and, and my teachers and my ex-girlfriends and, you know, all of that stuff, that's not really there anymore. That's not really there anymore. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not trying to say that, you know, I close my eyes and I have this, like, you know, Rick Rubin type of meditation, which is probably unfair because I don't know what type of meditation he has. He just seems super like spiritual and mellow and I love, I love his energy, but I'm not saying that at all. I'm just saying that like now compared to back then, you know, 10 years ago, meditating and praying versus now, like I have a really good relationship with God now. It's much easier to simply be alone in a room and close my eyes and be still and look at my thoughts. And, you know, I don't know who said it, but all of man's problems stem from his inability to sit alone in a room by himself for five minutes at a time or 15 minutes at a time, whatever the saying was. I got to tell you, I couldn't be alone for five seconds, 10, 12 years ago, 15 years ago. And today I live here where you're sitting. I live alone. I sit on this beautiful sofa and I say my little prayers. I fold my hands and, you know, do my little different various forms of meditation. I have all of the proper crystals and all of the proper religious icons. And, you know, I have a different religious necklace for a different day of the week. Like I don't, you know, I love where I'm at today with my relationship with God and it's all been piecemeal. There was no definitive moment. I definitely don't crave drugs and alcohol. I haven't craved drugs and alcohol for many, many, many years. And I don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about that stuff. I spend a lot of time I'll be totally honest with you. I spent a lot of time thinking about the Neil Strausses and thinking about the Rick Rubens and thinking about the, you know, my buddy Kelly, the people that I'm lucky enough to be around. There's a tiny part of me that struggles with, well, God, how do I get, you know, how am I around these people in the first place? They must all just feel sorry for me. That's, you know, what I tell myself. Or maybe I just talk so much about myself that it's so refreshing for them because normally people are like, dude, how do you do this? And how do you do that? Whatever the reason is, I don't care. I feed them. They let me be around them in, in, you know, little small increments of time. And I think about those people and, and the Oprah's and the Tony Robbins. And I think about like, how did they do that? How did they create those amazing giant lives? And my goal every single day is to, is to inspire people to heal myself and my wounds, to take care of my mother, to engage in, in healthy, happy relationships with other people, to be an example for people. And, um, and it's amazing. It's really, I can honestly tell you, and it's, it is what it is. I was going to say it's sad that it took me 47 years to get to this place or 40 something years to get to this place. But no, it's not because most people probably never get to this place from what I can see. I'm, I'm happy with my own company. I like to go to restaurants by myself and eat by myself. I like not going out. I love being invited to stuff. So if there's any cool thing and there's going to be a bunch of famous people, make sure you invite me. I won't show up. But if you don't invite me, I'm going to be really hurt. So I relate. Yeah, my 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 ego is still incredibly fragile. I am definitely pretentious and as shallow as the next guy. I like shiny things. I'm I still suffer 
under the oppression of my own ego, like most, you know, I bought a watch, I thought it was going to make me happy, it didn't, so I bought another watch. I'm still one of those idiots, but I now, with somewhat of a clear mind, I get up every day with the intention of being the man that God intended me to be, and every day I fall short of the mark, but throughout each day, I try to do one or two kind of cool things for other people, or maybe not even for other people, just like, and this is something that I don't talk about, but it's relevant to what we're talking about, like, When I go to the grocery store and I go shopping, no matter if it's raining or not, or no matter where I am in the parking lot or not, I put the grocery cart back. And when I first started doing it, I used to look all around and make sure everybody was watching me. And sometimes I would even grab like two or three carts and make sure like a cute girl watched me do it. And today I just put my shopping cart back and I don't do that because I'm a spiritual guy. I don't do that because I'm a good guy. I do that because it's common fucking sense. And each day, I try to do something small or big for somebody that can't do anything for me. So it's really easy for me to be nice to a, a Neil Strauss or, a, or whoever. You know, I'm really good at being kind and generous with people that are beautiful or famous or rich or all of the above. But what am I going to do when the day laborer who barely speaks English is struggling with carrying something? Or what am I going to do with the housekeeper that can't read English and she's looking at the menu in one of my shops, how am I going to engage with her? How am I going to treat her? Because it's so easy to be nice to beautiful people or rich people or famous people. But I think who I am, and at this point, I'm working on only being concerned with God judging me and me judging me. Who I am is measured in those moments when no one's looking. Am I going to pick up that piece of trash and throw it away? Because it's so easy to walk past. Am I going to put my shopping cart back? There was a couple struggling six months ago. I was at a restaurant over the hill, and there was a couple struggling. They had a couple of kids. I noticed they looked at the menus for a really long time. And I don't know if they were looking at the menus for a really long time because maybe they weren't getting along so well. My instinct was they were struggling with the prices. And their kids were making noise, and and they were being cool parents. You know, They were trying to settle the kids down as much as possible. And... I could see that something was going on there, and I don't need to know exactly what was going on, but I could feel that something was going on there. And uh, when I was leaving, I think I was with Haley. I think we were having a business meeting. I said, you know what? I'll, I'll be right out. I got I to gotta do something. And I went and I grabbed my waitress, and I said, is there any way that table over there, without them knowing, can you please give me their bill? I want to pay for it. Here's my credit card. And please, please, please do not tell them. Don't say anything just can we do that? And she's like, I got it. I totally get it. I gave her my card. She brought me their bill. I tipped her 20%. She looked at me. I looked at her. I got a little bit choked up. She got a little bit choked up. I walked out of that restaurant. I got back in the car with Haley, with my partner, and I drove over Canaan and I had to fight not to, to cry. Tell her? Oh, okay. No, okay, no, no. Okay. God, no. No, no, no. Because if you tell somebody, it's gone. It's done. I'm so glad you said that because I was waiting for that. I was like, oh, please don't tell me. No, anyone. no, I mean, no. The waitress had to know. Yeah, the waitress had to know. I, I, had, I had a spiritual teacher years ago. And when I first started experimenting with the idea of being of service, because my whole life I lived, I mean, I was a nice guy. You know, yeah. I have a loving sort of character. I care about people. I'm not violent. I don't fight. I mean, I'm a good dude, but still very self centered, very self absorbed. So yeah. when I first started learning about service, I would like, you know, the homeless guy on the side of the freeway, instead of getting change, I'd be like, fuck it. And I'd give him 20 bucks. Right. And then I would go to like 
a cute girl and be like, yeah, well, when I see homeless people, like today, a couple hours ago, of I give course. them a 20, you know of what I mean? Of course, yes. And then my, my spiritual guide at the time was like, asshole, if yeah. you tell anyone, it's you just over. negated yeah. the karma it's over. of their whole thing. Yeah. You ruined it. And so, but it is so tempting sometimes because you're like, God, I'm no. so awesome. You know, it's yeah. like, nope, nope, you got to keep it a secret. I kept it a secret and I... Until now. Yeah. But no, see, now there's a purpose of telling it though because yeah. other people can learn for for lesson. me for me to share it with you number one we're riffing off one another and we're we're appreciating one another's souls and spirits yeah. but my hope is my sincere hope is i don't care if anyone out there thinks like oh wow khalil's cool i don't i don't care about that i hope somebody out there when they see somebody at a restaurant and they're struggling and they've got an extra 50 bucks in their pocket i hope that they do that for somebody else and don't tell anybody about it and if someday a year from now and then you get invited on a podcast you can retell the story for the purpose of inspiring other people yeah. but what i was taught by this guy he's he's he passed away now but he used to tell me Almost every day, do something great for someone and don't get caught. Do something great. I think that's actually a Bob Anderson thing. Do something great for somebody and don't get caught. And I heard it over and over again. Of course, when I first started being of service, I was throwing out 20s like I was in a strip club and I was running to the next 12-step meeting I could find and raising my hand and talking about how spiritual I was. And again, it's like the girl in the club at 2.30 in the morning or the, the person walking around saying namaste, namaste, and they don't even know what namaste means, you know, or the healer. But eventually I got it to the place where for me, for my own humanity, for my own existence, for my own evolution, I want to do nice things for people, and I don't want anyone to know about it. And there's very, very few things that I've ever experienced, with the exception of spoiling my mother, which I go into in my book. There's very few things I've ever experienced that get me more high than a situation like that. Knowing when that waitress came over at the end and said, like, your bill has already been taken care of by a stranger, and just giving them that little bit of levity to their situation, you know? I know when I was down and out, and I was struggling, and I was hurting, and I was hungry, and people did nice stuff for me, it gave me hope. And that's what I want to do. And when you walk into any Sun Life Organics on the wall, you're going to see the words love, heal, and inspire. And that is truly what I am trying to sell. That's not some cool tagline that Darren Romanelli came up with or some branding expert came up with. That's something that came from one of my speeches when I was talking to the kids and we had about 100 employees at the time. I said, guys, your job is not just to give impeccable customer service, make a superior product. Your job is to truly love, heal, and inspire the people that walk through those doors because we've lost our fucking way. We have lost our way, man. We wake up in the morning and we turn on a, a computer in our hands and then we grab another computer, we put it in our lap and then we go to work and there's another computer and then there's a computer staring at us in the face and I don't want to get into that fucking weirdness and how they all have little cameras on them. <laughs> you know, like... <laughs> well, we, we could. We could get into that. Yeah. It's a weird... We live in a weird yeah. world and we've lost our way. So what I do... In my vocation, what, what I'm blessed enough and lucky enough to do. And I also want to make this point. So where I'm at, where I'm happy in my life is because for so long people kept telling me, and I stole this from somebody else, I'm sure. 
I don't know where it came from, but everyone always tell me, you know, do what you're passionate about, do what you're passionate about, find your passion, do what you're passionate about. I'm passionate about running around with girls and doing drugs, okay? I'm passionate about self-serving, self-seeking, self-aggrandizing. That's what I'm passionate about because I'm an idiot. But what is my purpose? I am blessed and lucky enough and have lived long enough and have stayed sober long enough to find out what my purpose is. And, it, and it's so simple. My purpose is to serve, literally and metaphorically. My purpose is to serve, whether it's writing a book and putting it on Amazon and putting the anti-selfie on the cover, whether it's owning uh, Malibu Beach Yoga and having a place where we can come together as a community and, and do yoga, whether it's opening up a Sunlife Organics in different communities around Southern California and, and maybe eventually around the country. It's providing a living room in each community that we open in and charging a fair price, hiring all local kids. I mean, you saw them today. You saw them all laughing and smiling, both stores, right? Yeah, it's crazy. The contrast between, because I've been to your spot down the street here like countless times. Yeah. That was the first time in the, what's it called? Cross Creek. Cross Creek Road. Yeah. yeah. The little Malibu Center. Um, but it's such a contrast between walking into a place full of millennial employees such as Starbucks yeah. and seeing how resentful and fucking miserable they are generally not generally. all of them yeah. but general the general tone is like and you walk in and you feel empathy for them cuz like you god your job sucks yeah. and you know it and I know it yeah. I'm going to try to be friendly throw you a couple bucks tip yeah. but you're like oh god you know and that energy is definitely not present in your spot like yeah. you go in and the kids are super happy and friendly and you can tell they're like on superfoods and super herbs. You know what yeah. I'm saying? It's like, and just the energy, the company culture, I think, yeah. you know, which I well, I respect a lot. Having, I don't, I've never employed nearly that many people. I have a much smaller uh, operation in my company, but leadership and setting company culture and things like that. I mean, I too dropped out of high school, like college, not even close. I don't know anything about business other than books I've read, podcasts I've listened to, and just learning the hard way of being an entrepreneur. And yeah. And creating that sort of environment for people is actually, there's a real skill there. And yeah. so like, I, I appreciate you being self-deprecating. You're like, oh, my partner's the one with the brains. And I have a partner that I say is the brains and I'm the heart. But there's also an emotional intelligence when it comes to setting the tone of a business. And I think that has a lot to do with your success and being able to replicate that gift to the community of having like the most pure, chronic, amazing things you can put in your body in all these different locations is there is a skill in being able to select the right people and also to cultivate that environment for them where they actually do enjoy their job. That's they love something, it. That's something I respect a lot yeah. about Dave Asprey. You know, it's like all his staff get like on the best supplements for free. They get yeah. an allowance. Um, he flies them around the country to do neurofeedback. Yeah. I mean, it's like he's very much into serving his servants i yeah. guess you could say in a way for lack yeah. of a better term i mean he knows it affects the bottom line too he's yeah. no dummy and you're no dummy either it's like do you want a bunch of depressed like little snot-nosed millennials they're serving a 46 year old guy like me that comes in and i'm like oh screw these punks i'm never coming here again yeah you know it's like it's a win-win when you spread that sort of consciousness yeah we both end. i think a lot of people would say that i'm a horrible businessman because and I'm just going to be 100% transparent. I mean, we're going to do we're going to do 10 million dollars a year. Uh, 
10, sorry, we're going to do $10 million this year in sales, right? Six locations, $10 million in sales. We will lose over $200,000. Most people would think you do $10 million a year in sales, you're going to make a million, two million, three million, five million. I, I assumed that if you sold $10 million worth of goods, you would make $5 million because I only knew basic math and like you sell a pound of weed, you buy it for $2,500, you sell it for five <laughs> grand, right? That's my trade yeah, so, too, yeah. So, but, but having said that, we're going to spend over $150,000 this year on raw materials to feed every one of those kids that works for us. Every single shift that they work, they're going to get a meal. And it's organic, and it's superfoods, and it's packed with life force. And that's coming right out of my pocket, my partner's pocket. And we don't care. We, we, we literally, I would rather do that and lose money for the year because we had a bunch of corporate expenses than not do that and make money because making money is easy if you're willing to sacrifice. If you're willing to put everything aside and go to work, you can make money. But inspiring hundreds of kids to eat healthy and to live healthy and to model for them what a drug and alcohol-free life looks like and to take them to do Tough mutters, and take them to do Spartan races. And then our top-level employees, we do profit sharing with them as well. And we had a very, very difficult decision to make this year because our new controller that we hired was like, guys, you're not only not making money, but you're losing money because you bought the van and the, the new juice press and because you opened up two new stores and you're going to be in the hole for a couple of years. You can't be giving them profit sharing if you're not making profits. And I'm like, but wait a second. If their stores are making a profit and they worked hard to make that store make a profit, then I'm giving them a percentage of that profit. And she's like, really? And I said, fuck yeah. And she's like, wow. And I'm like, but isn't that common sense? Like if I was that 20-year-old kid or we, we have a 19-year-old kid. No, we have an 18-year-old kid. She was there today at the first store we went to. We have an 18-year-old kid making over $50,000 a year. You know how fucking cool that makes me feel? You know how like exciting that is? Do you know when I walk in and she lights up and she sees me and she runs over and she hugs me? This is a girl that had a tough fucking life. This is a girl whose mom, let's just say, passed away um, a handful of years ago. And left this girl really sad. And when, then, when this little girl came and asked for a job, she was 15 and a half, 16 years old. When she came and asked me for a job, she was shaking. She was scared of her own shadow. And I was still doing the hiring and the firing back then. Thank God I don't anymore. But when she came and asked me for a job, she was shaking. And I was like, calm down. You're cool. Like, this isn't that big of a deal. Like, she's like, what do you mean? I'm like, I'm going to hire you. And she's like, you are? And I'm like, yeah. And she's like, really? And I'm like, yes. And she came to work for us. And, you know, here it is almost three years later, and she's managing a store and she's making over $50,000 a year. Do you think if I would have made 300 grand this year, which I should have, or actually should have made a lot more than that, do you think that my level of happiness would have changed at all? Based on my experience, no. No, not at all. It wouldn't have done anything different. But I'll tell you what. When I affect a young woman's life like that in such a profound way, my level of happiness grows exponentially. And that is what I care about. Now, look, 
at a certain point, we've got to rein in the costs. We've got to stop expanding. We've got to probably raise our prices, you know, I would say by 10%, maybe 15% and make it a profitable company because I don't want these kids to lose their jobs when we go belly up. But we never once thought about the bottom line. We thought about exactly what we're talking about. We thought about like, let's get these kids drinking healthy smoothies, eating healthy food every time they come into work. Let's spread that throughout each community that we're in. Let, let's make a difference because what's going on with people's, you know, the obesity and diabetes and energy levels and, and all this shit that's going on with health in this country. I mean, I'm from middle America. I go back home to visit and I cry. I look around at 16, 18, 25 year old young people that are fucking swollen from genetically modified wheat and from the dairy and the fucking corn syrup that we're pumping into everything. And I'm, I'm watching specials on 60 Minutes about how these super brilliant scientists sit around and 24 hours a day come up with ways to create flavors and scents that they can pump into this processed food to make you and I and those kids in middle America crave that fucking food. Like, I would love to have a bag of Doritos here right now and a Coke Zero and watch you and I try to get to the bottom of the bag without wrestling each other for the last fucking sip or chip. It's sad. It's fucking yeah. sad. And so I'm doing something about that. I'm making a difference. And that, if I die tonight in my sleep, I will literally die with a smile on my face because instead of finding out what I was passionate about, I found out what my purpose was. That's awesome. Thank you. Damn, hot damn. So as we start to, to wrap this up, we're, we're almost at the end of hour two on our part two here. And if you're listening and you haven't heard part one, you got to go back because we got deep. This is like, this is the reward. This is the happy ending of the story. Part one of this podcast was kind of like, you know, the nitty gritty. So what I'm hearing and, you know, I have so many uh, parallels in my own life of, you know, figuring out how to run a business that doesn't fail but also has been able to help a lot of people is this is where learning spiritual principles such as service such as humility willingness honesty all of these things courage this is where the rubber meets the road to me and this is really what creates a life where you can be sober but actually enjoy your life because mm. what i found was after, and you described this to a degree, after that initial euphoria of having like freedom from those chains yeah. of the addiction, yeah. after that excitement wears off, shit gets real and mm. life really fucking sucks <laughs> because you yeah. have a mind that won't stop. Yeah. You have emotions that are a roller coaster and you're suicidal and you hate people and you look in the mirror and you hate yourself and you're craving everything all the time that's not drugs and alcohol and you know just like god it's horrible being sober if you don't change right you know and and the spiritual sacrifice that we talked about of going through the stages of spiritual pride and egotism and all of this stuff and you know we didn't even touch on the other sort of legal addictions of sex and your phone and yeah. you know sugar and too much coffee and cigarettes and porn and spending money you don't have and debting and going to Barney's. I mean, I'm, I'm rattling off a bunch of my own shit, yeah. you know? It's like... Is Barney still open? <laughs> <laughs> I don't go there anymore. Like, okay. I had to get a handle on money. That's a whole other podcast. You said podcast. Barney's and my pulse quickened. <laughs> that's, a whole other, that's a whole other podcast. <laughs> Point being is that 
Barney's, by the way, for people in middle America, Barney's is like the most pretentious, expensive, ridiculous place you can shop at. For and clothes. For, yeah, clothing, yeah. shoes, yeah. boots, sweatshirts, whatever. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, and, and it's terrible. I'll be there tomorrow. Yeah. It's, <laughs> Just kidding. It's, it's dangerous. If you have a compulsive, addictive sort of... Yeah. No, it's a beautiful store. Propensity. They do an incredible job of merchandising. Yeah. It's they a have, great brand. They have the greatest selection of colognes on the planet. And it's... it's For people like you and I, it's dangerous. Yeah. You know, it's a, it's another bag well, of dude, Doritos. This is, but where I fell, and I don't want to get too off track, but where I got screwed up with like... Just spending money I don't have and shopping yeah. and using shopping as like a drug. Yeah. It was very slippery for me because I was a stylist for 17 years. Mm. And what you do for a living as you a shop. stylist is you shop. Yeah. So, and you put everything on your credit cards. Oh. This fucked me up, dude. This is, and you know, any of my <laughs> school of style students listening, a few of them do listen because they're, I don't know, they're nuts. I don't know why they would be interested in a lot of the stuff. Yeah. Because they just want to work in fashion. But the way it works is you front everything, right? Yeah. Sort of yeah. like if you have an interior designer, like they don't, they put everything on their credit card, they come put it in your house, and then yeah. you pay them back. Right. Well, when you're a record company or a movie studio or whatever, and you hire a stylist to dress a celebrity, that's the way it works. You have to have a hundred, hundred fifty dollars with the credit to work as a stylist in Hollywood. Yeah, hundred fifty thousand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, yeah, yeah, thousand. Yeah, yeah. Did I say hundred. Yeah, you said one hundred fifty. I'm yeah, like, no, wait, no, sorry. <laughs> <Or> Target. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Or shopping at the Goodwill. Yeah. Um, and then you spend all that money, and the client pays you back. But yeah. here's here's the slippery slope. So say I have a job that has a budget of twenty five thousand dollars, like a tour or whatever for a band, then I submit those receipts to the label. They pay me back and I just get a check for 25 grand. Right. I put that in my checking account and that happens a few times and yeah. I'm like, shit, I'm doing pretty well. I'm I forget rich. the fact yeah. that that's not my money. That's debt that I've accrued yeah. on my own personal credit card. Right. So, you know, that's just an example of how things can go awry. And then also just getting in the habit of like, if you're shopping for celebrities that have, you know, millions of dollars. Yeah. Like, yeah. You can have a bill from Barney's that's twenty five grand, and they're like, "Okay, cool, yeah, that's cool, that's fine." Yeah, and it's, so and it's, it's just like so he, I start thinking I'm one of them, and it, like I just, can buy the suit that's thirty five hundred dollars. I'm like, "No, I can't, dumbass!" Like, yeah, I'm not, you know, when, Kanye when so, West or whatever. Like, I actually can't afford it, when, but I don't know that because I think I'm starting to become one of them and shit. You yeah, know? when so and so got the you know the new pair of Golden Goose. I literally like went online. I'm like, where do I get Golden Goose? A, I have no business. I don't make that kind of money to, to buy $700 tennis shoes that look like someone's been wearing them for three years, right? It's the biggest crock of shit ever. Sorry, I'm going to bash on them. And I'm, I'm the idiot that bought them. And number two, <laughs> so-and-so, Mr. Unnamed Celebrity, he didn't pay for them. They gave him those shoes for free. I mean, it's so crazy how our temptation always comes dressed in our favorite designer labels. And I obviously mean that both metaphorically and physically. You know, when I was eight months sober, the super hot model, for whatever reason, that wanted to go on a date with me thought that it would be fun if we could go do ecstasy at a concert, you know? It wasn't the 300-pound, you know, softball girl, the girl that played softball that wanted to come and eat uh, a Reuben with me. No, it's our temptation comes dressed in our favorite designer labels, and it's up to us to, I don't want to say battle it, but it's up to us to sort of recognize it and just kind of like when you're meditating, you, you, you observe the thoughts, you acknowledge the thoughts, and you let them fall by the wayside. That's all. Because I don't want to battle my thoughts. I don't want to oh, grab God, no. Yeah, yeah. 
So what you're describing kind of is the net result of where you are in your life and your business and reaping the rewards um, internally and to a degree externally now is a life that what is what I call like a very practical, common sense way of living a spiritual life. And yeah. that's to address in a, in a self-honest way the issues that still remain unsolved, you know, right? And then using spiritual principles to overcome them by applying those spiritual principles in your life, not you know, learning what the word surrender means or humility means, but actually learning what the word means, getting someone else's account of how they apply that in a very real way in their life, then applying it to your own life and having that manifest in the result of a really fulfilling life. Yeah. It's like piecing together different practices of meditation and yoga and this and that and keeping that level of self-awareness up to where you actually have a life like when i look at your life it's magical based on where you've come from yeah and the story of your book and when i look it's harder to see my own life in that way but to the same degree you know it's like yeah i was smoking crack walking around hollywood and few short years later i'm living in a house in the hollywood hills like the right. houses i used to look up at going who are those fucking assholes right and how did they get there right and then i'm one of those assholes yeah but less of you know what i mean not not really so it's like yeah you know i think it's important for me to contextualize my life and the things that i have to face and the things that i have to go through using like a real down-to-earth spiritual approach because the results are just so fantastic but that doesn't mean that the work's over. So it's like, yeah, you're making money, you own businesses, you're helping all these people, but there's no like sense of arrival in, no. in this life. There's, no. there's always things that are going to come up. So me now, just be honest, what I'm struggling with, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to close this with, want to know what your current struggles are, because we've talked about so many that we've overcome. Sure. Me right now, this morning, here's how my day started. And I, I'm so, it's like embarrassing to me to admit this. I roll over. I keep my phone on airplane, you know, because I don't yeah. want like radio waves frying yeah. my brain when I'm Smart. sleeping. But I use a sleep app, so I like to have my phone on the bed. I wake up, turn on my phone. I won't check my emails. I broke that habit years ago. I do not check my emails until after I've meditated, done yoga, like gotten ready for the world. But what I did is I was like, cool, Twitter feed. Yeah. And then I start looking at politics. And the politics that I follow are not the mainstream politics of what you see on the news. They're like what I consider to be more what's really going on in the yeah. world. But it's pretty aggressive stuff right now in our climate. Like that's how I started my morning and then caught myself like, Luke, what the fuck are you doing? Right. Then I put on a David Hawkins audiobook, which is like one of my favorite spiritual Beautiful. teachers. And I was like, all right, Luke, don't, you can't do this Twitter when you wake up. Power versus force? Uh, actually, this was one called uh, Surrender. Which yeah, was the, I got it. Yeah, Love it. Love it. Amazing, Brilliant. dude. Amazing. Yeah. I've read it, I don't know, 20 times. Yeah. I've listened to it probably 100 times, yeah. not even exaggerating. I've got them all. So that like got my head in the right place, and okay. I was like, Luke, you can't do that. Now, I don't do the Twitter thing every morning, but I find like the thing I use to run away from feeling discomfort now is my phone. Like yeah. That's my current addiction, because the other ones like smoking and banging anything that moves and like yeah. a lot of the things like that have just become so uncomfortable that I really can't get away with them. I yeah. quit smoking five years ago and well, I don't know that I've quit banging totally, but yeah. I quit banging anything that moves. You yeah, know? yeah. And so it's like my old go-tos don't work anymore and now the mind and the ego are like, well, let's get something innocuous like 
Well, I mean, surely you can look at your phone. What's wrong with that? Yeah. But it's what do I do and what's the what's the intention? The intention is I don't want to feel anything. I don't want to think anything uncomfortable, feel anything uncomfortable. So I use different things that are maybe, if not destructive, just distract me from my purpose. Right. And actually sort of sort of dilute my <laughs> consciousness, right? It's yeah. like, I don't have room for fucking Twitter politics right now. Right. I really don't have room. I'm coming over here today to do a podcast. Like, yeah. I want to pray. I want to meditate. I went to the gym. I did my ice bath. Like, that's what gives me a good life. So it's like there's never a finishing point where I'm like, I'm good. I'm cured. Like, yeah. I've arrived. Now I make money. I'm successful. I've got a wife. I've got a kid. Now I can just chill. There's no chilling because... The insidious nature of the ego and that that monkey mind always finds a way to sort of creep back in, and it's so hard to spot if you stop looking. Yeah. So to me, it's like I can't take my finger off the pulse. I can't stop being vigilant, not self-critical, not self-effacing or self-judgmental, but self-aware and self-honest. Like, yeah. okay, I'm going to lovingly notice that I really have an addictive relationship with my phone. Straight up. Yeah. Is that the end of the world? No. No. But it just shows me that, <laughs> that there's something I want to address if I really want to be present. And, yeah. I, and I, there's something in me that I'm still running from is what that tells me. Yeah. What is that loneliness or what is that hurt or what is that discomfort that I'm using my phone to suppress or repress, you know? Right. But I, I don't, so, so what is mine? Yeah. Yes. So what are, what are you working on right now? So, well, I'm not. I'm not. blocking you from, from having a higher level of achievement with your purpose. So mine, mine is not very different from yours. So I don't know how to do Twitter. If I did, I'd probably be deep in trouble with it, uh, especially because I have impulsivity control issues and I have no filter. So my, <laughs> my I just had to delete a whole political season of yeah. tweets yeah. because it was brought to my attention to someone I care about that they were offended by them. Yeah. And it wasn't because I like Hillary Clinton. Right. Let me just say that. Right, exactly. You know, it's so, like, I have a totally different view on things I, than a lot my, of liberal my, people. My HR girl, Katie, who's brilliant, she definitely said, like, no... No, uh, no comment. <laughs> no Insta, no, no Insta story, no Snapchat, and try, you know, and, and definitely no Twitter. So, but I, I'll tell you, my conundrum is this. So, I wrote a book. I forgot to die. We've gone over this. Yes. Uh, it sold out on Amazon after the piece in the New York Times came out, came out about it. Awesome. CBS News, C, uh, CBS Morning Show did a piece. Nightline, ABC Nightline did a piece. All really wonderful as vehicles to move this book and to inspire people. I look at the reviews on Amazon daily, and I cry a lot of times when I read them, how beautiful they are. And, and, and I get messages from people all over the world. And I literally mean all over the world. You know, your, your book has helped me so much. I'm enjoying the shit out of that because I never thought that I was good enough. The voice inside my head told me that I was a piece of shit and no one would read my book. And a lot of people are reading my book. A lot of people are going on Amazon and purchasing it. And it's helping, it's helping a good handful of people according to the messages that I'm getting. So let me get to the, That's the good part. Yeah, I'm like, what's wrong with that? Okay. Yeah. So I'm on Instagram. I'm on Facebook too, but only as like a backup. But I'm on, I'm on Instagram. And I was always private on Instagram because I've had some real weird sickos over the years like do some weird, creepy, stalky stuff. And so I was always private on Instagram. And my buddy said, buddy, if you want to sell your book and you got a piece in the New York Times out, you got to go private on your – I mean, you got to go public on your Instagram. So I went public on my Instagram and I started getting followers right away, especially from the New York Times thing, thousands of, of followers. And 
I do stuff like ice bath or exercising or weightlifting or different stuff that looks good on Instagram. And it's very inspiring. If you're young and you're, and you're struggling and you think that if you quit doing drugs and alcohol, your life's going to suck, look at my Instagram and tell me if my life sucks. My life is effing amazing, you know, by anybody's standards, I think. And it's a lot of fun. Here's where the darkness creeps in. So I did the Summit at Sea thing. You know, I posted about that. I'm on the beach. I've been exercising a lot. Let me do a shirtless selfie. Yeah, I'm not there with the shirtless part yet. Okay. I still so, have way too low self-body image okay. issues. So I'm doing the selfie. Here's the see-through tur- turquoise water. Uh, now I'm in Monaco. Here's the yacht. Now I'm in Italy. Here's the thing of pasta. And people are really digging it. There's a good handful of people that are really liking it and commenting, and this is so inspiring. And and the more I hear that, then it starts to creep into, well, now I'm getting on a private jet, so let me get the pilot to walk off the private jet and take a picture of me getting on this private jet. And again, I can justify it because people will comment like, oh my God, that's so epic and blah, blah, blah. Where am I being this dude that was homeless and a convicted felon and a high school dropout, and now he's working hard, he's inspiring these people? Where does that end, and where does my ego pick up and let me do another picture of a private jet, and let me do a picture in my fancy car that I restored, and let me do a picture of me with my famous friends at the UFC fight? And again, it's like it's a slippery slope because... There's some really cool pictures on there that I took that could be perceived maybe by you, maybe by somebody else as inspiring. But then there's a there's a, a, a voice inside of me that's like, how many pictures of yourself shirtless on some exotic beach or how many pictures of yourself with your celebrity buddies are you going to post? At what point is your ego going to be satisfied? And is this really serving others? That haunts me and it becomes compulsive and it becomes an addiction. I got lucky enough to get invited to go on tour with my friend's band and I could not get in front of the stage fast enough to take a video, to take a picture, to put on Instagram immediately so I could get that ego gratification. Now look, super grateful to be there. It was one of the greatest experiences of my life, literally one of the greatest experiences of my life. But there's just part of me that knows that a large part of it is ego. And a big part of me is still very broken and very shallow. And I am desperate for you and anyone out there to hit like so I can feel worthy. That's real talk, dude. See, that's so good. So this is. I mean, this is like such a nice sort of, you know, uh, summary to everything we've been talking about in that there's no end because there's no end to the ego. Nope. And what I want to say, and this goes along with David Hawkins' whole trip, is that when I see myself doing a humble brag on Instagram, so maybe it gets me late or even I'll even settle for someone liking me and just thinking I'm okay because I don't think I'm okay inside. Right. This is on Instagram especially this is so rampant. I mean, 
maybe a, a more stereotypical female version would it be like a body shot, a cleavage shot, like and getting all these guys to be like, oh my god, babe, you're so hot, Whoa. right? You know, and my version would be a jet or a Rolex, like showing my Range Rover steering wheel, right. you know, in the shot and all that materialism that, like, I know is bullshit, right? But it's like, God, it's a it's a tough one because it's like inspirational if you've come from a place like you've came from but it's also just good marketing <laughs> it's smart marketing and ego you know but it's like what am i going to find next so i stopped doing that kind of shit and yeah. i just show people my real life i mean like for me it was a real stretch to start doing instagram stories which by the way if you're listening please follow me on instagram i have a lot of great <laughs> stories there's a promotion there for you. Uh, I love it. But when I do the stories, I'm like shirtless. I'm not yeah. in great shape. You know, to my mind, I'm not in the kind of shape that I want to be like a 25-year-old Calvin yeah. Klein model or whatever I think I'm supposed to be. Yeah. But I, I make mistakes in the way that I speak. There's grammatical errors. My hairline's receding. I have a zit on my forehead today. Like, I'm things that I'm judging about myself. Yeah. I'm show I'm making myself show the world. You know, it's like another thing I do is I go to hot springs and like I run around naked everywhere. Yeah. And like make myself go through the discomfort of doing that. Not because I'm an exhibitionist. It's because I actually don't really feel that great about the way that I look. Yeah. And that's my way of like killing the ego. Do you do manscaping first before you go? <laughs> yeah, I'm always do a fair Okay, okay. Because I want to, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I want to. No, yeah, I'm not. Uh, I'm right. not because I, I don't want like you to. That. You can embarrass yourself, but don't embarrass. I'm yourself. not a hippie like that. But okay. back to the David Hawkins thing, and I think this is so crucial: is when I find myself doing something that I would perceive to be gross in another one. Like when I see braggarts that are just hiding their insecurities on Instagram. Yeah, I'll superficially judge them. And be like, oh, I see through that shit. How lame. David Hawkins' approach to ego is not that ego is evil or that it's bad or that it's a sin. It's part of who you are. Yeah. You have an animal body. You have instincts. And one of them is the fucking herd instinct. And through our evolution, if you're in a tribe of 40 or 50 people and everyone hates you, you're literally going to fucking die. Right. Because they're going to leave you behind right. when they move the camp. And not share and food you're, with you. And yeah, and your yeah. ass is going to get ostracized and kicked out. Um, this is also where the fear of approaching a beautiful woman comes from. Right. This is a right. side note. Right. If you hit on you know the tribal leader's daughter, they're going to cut your head off. Yeah. So... To me, it's about embracing my ego and loving my ego as a part of me, but not falling asleep and losing the awareness of it. So if I see myself on Instagram doing some superficial materialistic bullshit that's screaming, everyone please like me, I don't necessarily have to stop doing it. Yeah. For me, it's just like I have to do it with an awareness Yeah. and with a level of honesty yeah. and know that that's not me doing it, knowing that I'm observing my ego doing that. Yeah. And there will probably come a point where I'm able to surrender the ego's need to go do that, but that's only going to happen through a non-judgmental awareness of my ego doing that. Yeah. Well, Rich Roll said you to me You see what I'm saying? Yeah, Rich Roll said to me, "Why are you always posting all those pictures of yourself getting on private jets?" And I said, "Cuz I want you to like me." <laughs> and he started laughing and he goes, I already like you. I'm like, okay, well, I want other people to like me too. And he goes, yeah, or I want you to like me more. Right. And then he says, uh, when are you going to stop? And I said, honestly, when they're my private jets. Because those ain't my private jets. And that's not my band that I'm posting on Instagram. And I'm not the famous movie star at that UFC fight that I'm lucky enough to be sitting next to front row, you know, at the Conor McGregor fight. Maybe when I'm famous or when I own a private jet, I won't feel the need to have to try to, you know, 
brag on Instagram about who I'm sitting next to or who I'm standing next to or what what type of jet I'm getting on. Look, I'm a flawed man. I have a lot of character defects. I have a lot of things that are wrong with me that I will work on and make better. But I'm just so grateful that I broke free from the bondage of addiction and alcoholism. Because one thing I will say is today with all my posturing on Instagram and my removing my body hair and my obsessively exercising and all the weird shit I do because of my body dysmorphia and my deep, desperate need to to be liked, I'm clean and sober today. I employ a bunch of people. I'm an asset to the community that I live in. I am a good son to the best of my ability. I'm a good partner to the best of my ability. I'm honest as much as I can be in each day that I'm in, and I'm contributing, and I've become a giver versus a taker. And I was always a taker, and it was a horrible, horrible, horrible existence. Addiction and alcoholism is a life, uh, it's a wilderness of fucking pain that I never, ever, ever want to go back to. So that's kind of it. There's some good about me, and there's some bad about me, and there's a healthy dose of ego thrown right into the middle, and I really, really want you to like me, and I really want to shine, and I really want to be the man that God intended me to be. That's awesome. I thank you for that. And that uh, brings to mind, and I'll, I'll close with this before the final question, is a definition of humility that I heard. And there's a lot of good ones, but one of my favorites is, it's a clear and honest recognition of who and what I am, and an honest desire to become what I could be. And how Hawkins says it is like, I've shoveled a lot of coal, meaning I've grown a lot spiritually, but there's a lot of coal left to be shoveled. You know, <laughs> I mean, that's it. It's I like, love it. you know, it's like admitting my faults, admitting my flaws, but also acknowledging the shit that I've overcome and yeah. accomplished, whether it was through God's grace or my own grit and willpower or strength or, both. or whatever, or both. combination of both. Yeah. But I mean, that's a life worth living, man. So thank yeah. you for sharing your life with me um, over the course of this, wow, almost two and a half hours. Awesome. I don't, you know, I don't know. Like I, when I started my podcast, I'm like, all right, well, every interview is going to be an hour. And sometimes yeah. like hour and 10, hour 15, hour and 20. But I don't know. At the same time, it's like, well, who has time to listen to a two or three hour podcast? A, but B, like I can't stop this from happening. Yeah. You know, because it's just like, Mm, this is the shit that's real to me. The, these are the talks that have been meaningful in my life. And, you know, I can only hope that they're as meaningful to the people listening. So thank you, whoever's listening. And yeah. thank you so much for speaking. And I'd like to um, end with the final question, which is you've taught me so much today. You've taught our listeners so much. Who have been three influential teachers or teachings in your life? You mentioned the power of now, could be a book, philosophy, person idea, movie, anything. Give us three places we can go higher up the food chain from you. Um, I definitely would say Dr. David Hawkins, is, is who we talked about, is, is one of the most brilliant, profound teachers. And whether it's Power versus Force, which is, was his most popular one, which I found the least value Me in. Me too. Okay. <laughs> the hardest to <laughs> okay. read. Yeah. That was my entry point. I was like, I don't yeah. get it. Like uh, Wayne Dyer was really into him and yeah. Oprah. And I'm like, yeah. huh? Do Dr. David Hawkins is, is one, of my, uh, one of my greatest teachers. Um, I think sobriety 
abstinence from drugs and alcohol, clean time, whatever you want to call it. I'm just going to, I'm just going to say abstinence from intoxicants is 1000% my greatest teacher. And I would encourage anybody out there, uh, whether you think you have a problem or you don't. And, <laughs> and the funny thing is, is if you think you don't have a problem is probably the hallmark sign that you do have a problem because denial is a hallmark sign of, of alcoholism or chemical dependence. Dr. David Hawking's abstinence from intoxicants and pain, pain as much as I dread you and I fear you and I avoid you at all costs. Pain has been the touchstone of all my spiritual growth. Comfort, 90% of the time, comfort makes me a coward, makes me a glutton, makes me less human and less of service. And pain has been the greatest motivator that I've ever encountered. So if you are in pain, as crazy as this sounds, please embrace it, hug it. Know that it is your teacher and know that it is here. It is a gift. It is absolutely a gift to take you to the next level of awareness, of abundance, of prosperity, of happiness, of joy, of bliss, of life. And that's it. And that is a great summary of the message of the book, Letting Go. The power, I think it's called The Power of Surrender. I always forget. I just call it Surrender, but it's called Letting Go. The, yeah. the, the last David Hawkins book uh, is all about that, is awesome. about embracing the discomfort and the pain. And that's that's one of my favorite teachers and lessons, too. Yeah. So thank you so much for that. So where can we find you, your various businesses? To, yeah, we know about your book. You can find that on Amazon. You got any other websites or social you want us to point to? Yeah, you'll find me shirtless uh, walking onto shirtless a private on jet. jet. <laughs> <laughs> um, on Instagram, it's just my first and last name, Khalil Rafati. And please hit like. You can find I Forgot to Die, the book that I wrote on Amazon, both in the Kindle version and in the paperback version. And uh, Sun Life Organics, they're all over the greater Los Angeles area. There's a couple here in Malibu. Um, Westlake, Calabasas, Pasadena, and Manhattan Beach will be opening up at the USC Village in about six months, as well as, I believe, the Century City Mall and the Pacific Palisades, but those leases aren't signed yet, so can't guarantee that. Um, and uh, and what else do I do? Malibu Beach Yoga is here in Malibu. If you live in Malibu or if you live near Malibu and you want to come do yoga, um, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty cool place to do yoga there's some big giant crystals in there and there's a giant hand-painted mural of Ganesh or however you pronounce it Ganesha Ganesh and I think that's it I'm on Facebook but not really and I'm private and I don't really accept anybody unless I recognize them so yeah really I forgot to die has an Instagram and I put some kind of cool like tough mutter Spartan race stuff on there uh, some quotes and you know some pictures of me lifting weights with my hairless arms uh, and, uh, and then my, my Instagram, Khalil Rafati. And, and that's about it. And I, and I really appreciate everybody listening and, and suffering through this. I hope that someone out there that is in pain or discomfort, I hope you found some joy in, in my ridiculousness, in my transparency, in my boasting and my bragging and my, my pontificating, uh, in my diatribe. Um, this is who I am, good or bad. Uh, th that's for God to decide. I am here to do my dance. And if it pleases you, that's great. 
And if it doesn't please you, that's great too. God bless all of you, and uh, and thank you for listening. And in closing, I will say namaste. Namaste, motherfucker. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. So how was that for some raw, uncut realness, y'all? Good stuff, right? I love the vulnerability and the truth that Khalil brought to this interview. It was very cathartic for myself. I learned a lot. I hope that you learned a lot. As I said earlier in the show, it would be such a gift if you could share this episode or my show in general with someone you know that's struggled with addiction or alcoholism or any of these issues that we're all working to overcome. Means a lot to Khalil, means a lot to me. So forward this, screen grab it, share it with a friend. If you're feeling super grateful and inspired, what would be even awesome one step further would be this. Go into iTunes, log in, find my podcast, leave me a rating and a review. If that's challenging for you because you're not techie, I've made it super easy. As I said, you can now go to lukestory.com forward slash how to iTunes review. And I've got it laid out there so that you can do it on your phone or on your computer. It's super easy. LukeStory.com, how to iTunes review. And if you can't do any of that, then all I'll ask is that you click subscribe so you don't miss next Tuesday's episode featuring Dr. Robin Burzen from Parsley Health. It's all about functional medicine and how to become your own doctor. A fantastic episode coming at you next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.